0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. Michael Zuber, one rental at a time. It is Monday, and that means we speak to the one and only Mr. Greg Dickerson. How you doing, sir?
1: Doing great, Michael. Good to see you.
0: Nice to see you as well. Uh, I have to say your calls, folks. And if you haven't been watching uh, Greg's playlist, you're really missing out. He has made some amazing calls. And what we're going to tap into here in video one is a little bit of his history and experience. He was a builder in uh, oceanfront properties. And uh, during the last... Real estate recession. So I wanted to talk about surviving a bear market. How do you how do you do that? What, what do you decide to do, uh, and then how do you thrive after? Because I think it's about surviving and then thriving. But uh, let's hear from you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just that I was doing commercial projects and land development projects. I had a bunch of stuff going on back in two thousand eight nine, and you know it was a very difficult time where you know banks would all of a sudden call your loan even if you weren't in default. You know the yeah. banks were failing, uh, especially. Um, one of the banks, what was it? Uh, SunTrust. SunTrust was just caving in on everybody a lot. They were doing a lot of development loans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had to understand what the banks were dealing with, what they were going through and how to best negotiate and position yourself with them. And as a developer, you know, generally you could do projects, pull all your equity out. So at the end of the day, they were non-recourse. All the loans yeah. were non-recourse. You had no equity in them because you got paid through developer fees or general contracting fees, you know, mm-hmm. to build the properties. So the banks had all the risk. So, uh, you know, you could negotiate from a point of strength, but just in general, as the market turned and shifted, it became a very different market. And, you know, inventory started stacking up, properties weren't selling, values were getting cut in half in a lot of markets. As a builder, I was flat out put out of business. There was just no work. Nobody was spending money to build in a declining market or to improve or renovate properties in a declining market. Um, it was just, you know, really, really tough times. So I pivoted uh, because, you know, there were still properties that were getting bought and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I just pivoted my business model instead of doing the big multi million dollar high end homes. I started focusing on the affordable price point homes that people were paying cash for. So what I did was, you know, um, I kind of led the market down mm-hmm. and you started looking for lots because lots were the slowest segment. Slowest moving segment of the market, mm-hmm. and um, I started building, you know, little beach houses that cost less than the kitchens and these multi million dollar houses, you know that that I was uh, building before. Mm-hmm. But there was still a market for that two, you know, ninety five to three hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, depending yeah. on where it was located in the market. Now this was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and those values didn't change for a long time. So I was able to build a nice sustainable business off of this and pivot into building, you know, 15 to 20, sometimes 30 of these a year, Mm. you know, versus doing a couple of, you know, well, I was doing 30 of the big million dollar houses a year, but I ended up making just as much money on these as I Mm. did some of the bigger houses because there was so much demand for them. And I was getting the lots so cheap. Mm. And that's where I tell the story where I ended up buying lots for about half of what I offered people pre 2008 and nine. Oh, wow. And, you know, uh, and even back in 0405. So a lot of people I talked to in 0405 when the market was kind of peaking. I said, look, the market's changing. Good time to sell. They said, ah, I'll be worth 10 times <laughs> as much and, you know, whatever, twice as much in 10 years. And it ended up being worth half as much in 10 years, yeah, you know, in less than 10 years. Because, you know, it was 2000, you know, nine, late 2009, going to 2010, 11, when I was buying a lot of those lots, I'd talk to people three or four or five years before for about half the price. And it wasn't me; it was the market. Mm-hmm. So as I bought a lot, let's say a lot was once worth a hundred thousand, now it's worth fifty. So I'd buy one at fifty, and I was watching the market, you know, drop. My next offer would be forty,
0: mm-hmm. and my
1: next offer would be thirty, and then it all it got all the way back down to about twenty five thousand dollars, which is where wow. lots were selling for when I first moved to the area in nineteen ninety seven. You know, you could buy lots for five, 10, 15,000, and then it got up to about 20, 25, and it reverted all the way back to those values again. So I just kind of watched the market, you know, led the way down in, in that regard and just, you know, started building these little, you know, production beach houses, three bedroom, two bath. People were coming down, paying cash for them, second homes, year round homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whole different business model. So you just got to kind of reinvent yourself and, you know, wait for things to turn.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I want to kind of highlight. First and foremost, uh, the speed at which the market turned right from red hot to off was uh, something to watch. It it seemed overnight and and maybe it was a 30 or 45 day window, but uh, when it turned, it turned pretty quick,
1: right? Yeah. And the main reason was because the banks were in trouble. So the liquidity dried up. The banks were not lending. The Fed did not come in and backstop that. They let it all crash. I mean, the You know, it's really interesting to see what's going on now, what happened in, you know, March of 2020, what happened, you know, after 2009 and 10, the Fed started quantitative easing, but they weren't buying mortgage-backed securities, they weren't propping up the banks. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a very interesting time, but that was the main thing. I mean, interest rates went up over 5% and the banks stopped lending money. So, you know, the general population could not borrow any money. Most people were in default or or going into default, you know, very quick, not overnight, but that started happening afterwards. But Mm -hmm. the real big issue was the banks just weren't lending the money.
0: Yeah, you're so right. Then the other thing I want to highlight again is is if you've you've done this since you, the truck in the toolbox conversation is you don't fight the market, you pivot to what's working, right? And you got out of the high end and then you went to the bread and butter Home that you know a lot of people could afford. So kudos to you. And again, it's funny when you look at that and you made just as much money on, you know, a product that was probably, I don't know, one tenth, one twelfth of, of what the other ones were.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, somewhere around there. And you know, you don't, yeah, you don't fight the trend. You never go against the trend. You have to work with the trend. And mm-hmm. so you wanna you wanna counter that with being a contrarian investor. So some people will say, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, you want to be a contrary investor contrarian investor, you know, that can work, but it's got to be within the context of the trend. Yes. So, uh, you know, that's what you got to think about. So when the market was going up, I was leading it up. And when, you know, like one property would sell for a hundred thousand a day, I'd sell it for 120 tomorrow, 130. I had a business model back then. If my house was sitting or a property was sitting on the market more than 30 days, I would raise the price It would sell. Oh, Very weird. Wow. wow. That was pre 2008, and nine. And, you know, inventory started dwindling, you know, um, vacant lots, all the builders started building specs. And then it went from, I was the only buyer to where everybody, and then they were getting bid up and things like that. So you lead it up on the way up. But when that thing shifts, you got to look at the momentum of the trend and it rolls over and starts going down the hill. And then you lead the market down, meaning, you know, if it sold for a hundred today, 75 tomorrow, 50, you know, and you just kind of work it like that because even the appraisers were calling it a declining market. So yeah. Um, you know, and in the markets today, you know, we have a trend that we're Mm -hmm. in right now and it's, uh, you know, so you don't fight the trend, you don't fight the Fed, you try to identify the momentum, Mm -hmm. uh, and work with it and then pivot with it. You have to, you have to be nimble and you have to pivot.
0: Yeah. The other thing I want to poke out just a little bit more and see if you, you see the possibility the same this time is land, right? Land is one of those things that's kind of, in my experience, the last thing to go up and then it's the first thing to fall. Because it's illiquid, doesn't produce cash flow. You still have all the liabilities uh, with land. Do you think land might be one of the first things that fall in this environment?
1: No, I wouldn't say fall. And it's a very different animal now because builders are trying to build as fast as they can. They're looking Mm -hmm. for, for finished lots. So when you say land, there's all kinds of different land out there that you can buy. But let's just talk about, you know, development property. Um, you know, with as little inventory as there is right now, there's a ton of demand for development. So there's a ton of demand for land. Whereas, mm-hmm. in most markets, land is usually the slowest moving segment because it's you know more risky, it's more time consuming. People want you know finished product now and single family residential. Mm-hmm. And in commercial and multifamily, it's you know it takes a certain individual to be a developer and to bring product to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be ahead of the curve because a lot of times you're bringing new product to the market when there is no demand but there will be two, three, four years when you're done. Yeah. So it's a, it's a different kind of business model. Whereas right now there's pent up demand everywhere in most markets, especially in the Sun Belt. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of competition for land right now. Land's been selling, you know, at record numbers in the right locations and not all land is created equal. I mean, there's still land that you can't give away, mm. you know, things like that. But the days of the people that I know that became very wealthy with land, I know several people that, in their areas in my corridor had been buying land for 60 years. Mm. And, you know, they have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of properties, vacant land, because they were buying it for just, you know, stupid money, you know, $100 mm. an acre, $1,000 yeah. an acre, just really crazy, develop a land where, you know, the, the city limits had moved towards in some of these areas. Mm. You know, those types of opportunities are, are kind of few and far between now in, in most areas.
0: Okay, and then the last thing, because you were a builder, one of the things I've been doing a lot of reading, because I think I think we're, there will be some builders that get got in this in this kind of adjustment with rates so high. I, it just seems to me that this might be the hardest time ever to be a developer, right? Because you have supply chain issues, you have dead days, you have nobody you can find, uh, costs of everything are up from labor to supplies. It's just, am I wrong, or d- does this feel like one of the hardest environments to be a builder in?
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of the most, you know, difficult and frustrating from that standpoint, getting stuff in and getting stuff done and costs, you know, creeping on you. But it's one of the best times from a profitability standpoint, because mm-hmm. everybody has in their contracts, you know, force majeure and, mm. you know, these escalation clauses, because you don't know what it's going to cost you at the end of the day. So if you're doing yeah. custom work for a client it's cost plus. And, you know, so that's a great position to be in because you just, everything's out of your control Hmm. time, you know, penalties, things like that, you know, are kind of out the window because you just can't control a lot of things right now um, due to what's going on in the supply chain. So from that standpoint, it can be good, but from the other standpoint, it's extremely difficult because your clients don't understand all that. You know, they, you, you know, it's frustrating for the client. It's frustrating for the vendors and suppliers and, Everybody involved in the business. So it's 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 it is a difficult time because you can't get enough done mm-hmm. and deliver units to the market fast enough. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. I think they say that we have a five year um, supply shortage right now that we could, not you know, as a as a country building mm-hmm. at the pace we're building right now, it'll take five years at current levels to build through the uh, demand that's out there right now.
0: Yeah, I guess the last question on topic number one for you, and if you don't know, it's totally okay, but I just wanted to ask, what percentage of stuff that goes into a home, a, a new construction is, uh, I don't know, I'll call it manufactured or produced in the U.S. versus has to be shipped or flown in uh, from around the world? Do, do you have any idea?
1: I don't know the percentages, but you know, a lot of the building components and products, cabinets, countertops, all that comes from outside the country. Mm-hmm. Obviously, lumber generally is is produced within the United States. Uh, but a lot of the other, a lot of the other products or the components that go into those products are shipped from overseas. Yeah. Uh, So it's, you know, that's not getting any better. (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) pretty much everything. I mean, there's hardly anything produced in this country anymore.
0: Yeah. We've got to fix that. That's one of the things that I hope comes out of this in the next decade or so we make a lot more stuff from pharmaceuticals to PCE or whatever called to, building components. Uh, I think relying on people that don't like us is uh, not a, not a great recipe for long-term success. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Energy is a big one. Food security is another one. Uh, So we need to be the largest producers of energy food, you know, all the core things that we need. So we don't have to rely on, um, you know, countries that can use that against you, you know, and especially our enemy, our enemy countries, mm-hmm. you know, we definitely don't want to be rely on them. And just the pandemic alone started the deglobalization process. Mm-hmm. The war in Ukraine has accelerated it. And, you know, we have friends around the world, but I think all of the larger nations, you know, there's no reason why we can't be the largest exporter uh, to all of these other countries and eliminate, you know, the ability of the enemies to use all that against us. Like we're seeing it happen right now. Totally agree. Couldn't agree more.
0: Uh, do me a favor. Where can people find you? You put out amazing stuff every day.
1: Yeah. Gregdickerson.com. All my social media links are there. Go check it out.
0: Thanks, buddy.